Good evening, everyone. And welcome. We're absolutely delighted to host you here tonight. Um, for those of you who haven't met me before, I'm Catherine Refshorgi. I'm Professor of Physiotherapy and Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences. But before we get on to the formal proceedings, I'd just like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land, the Kadigal people of the Aora Nation, and also the Wongal people also of the Aora Nation, because it's on their traditional lands that our campus at Lidcom is um, located. And what better place to be um, having a, a discussion about conversation given the long history and tradition of, of oral history that's in the past centuries on this land. So this is the second in the series of Sydney Ideas lecture series from the Faculty of Health Sciences. It's titled Thought Leaders in Shaping Health. Um, it, so we joined into the university program, but this is our second one for this series. And what we're doing in this series is presenting emerging and cutting edge research that's accessible to the community. So we're presenting it in a way that you can use tomorrow or understand now. So the most cutting edge knowledge that no one else really knows yet. So yes, um, I'll mention Twitter later in a, few, in a minute and if I don't, just stick up your hand to remind me. But it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Leanne Tor to speak with you tonight. Leanne is Professor of Communication Disorders Following Traumatic Brain Injury, and she's also a Senior Research Fellow with NHMRC, which is absolute evidence of her standing and reputation in research in her area. She's a speech pathologist, and she's worked in the area of communication disorders following acquired brain injury for over 25 years. She has a really remarkable body of knowledge. Her whole body of research has developed ways of enabling people with traumatic brain injuries and their families and friends to support and engage with each other to overcome barriers and re regain the rewards of satisfying conversation. That's actually what she says on her website. But I would like to add to that that communication is a fundamental human right and without it, it's extraordinarily to live in our modern world at all. And Leanne, Leanne's research is focused at that and making people's lives livable. Leanne has published training packages for law and justice personnel, that's the police and lawyers, in conjunction with Attorney General's Department of New South Wales. And more recently, she's launched a new treatment resource called TBI Express, that's tra um, Traumatic Brain Injury Express, aimed at improving everyday communication for people with brain injury and their families. But also, I have the privilege to tell you that this is, an, this is a brand new piece of information, that to congratulate Leanne, it was last weekend, Leanne was appointed as one of only seven ever fellows of the Australasian Society for the Study of Brain Impairment. This is an award not just for quantity of service, and she has been on their executive for 15 years, but it's also for quality of service. That's seven, seven fellows ever in the history of their organisation, which is around 40 years. So it's a huge achievement. <laughs> And she didn't apply for it. It was a surprise to her. You can always write stuff about yourself. So this was an acknowledgement from her peers. So it's a huge award and totally deserved. But tonight, Leanne will be talking, she's talking about um, the art and science of communication, of good, commu good conversation, excuse me. Um, but she'll be talking about innovative approaches to helping families of people with brain injury relearn the art and science of good conversation. And she'll show us how these principles can benefit all of us, I, I'm looking forward to that, who seek to enjoy conversations with those close to us. There will be questions, like that's the point of this, to engage everyone in discussion. So there'll be time for questions and answers and discussion and debate at the end of the presentation. And also note, that we have a Twitter feed going. 
The hashtag is hashtag SIDIDEAS, that's S-Y-D-I-D-E-S, F-H-S, Faculty of Health Sciences. So feel free to tweet, but otherwise turn the sound off your phone. So thank you and welcome, Leanne. Thank you for that absolutely lovely introduction. And thank you for this amazing turnout. I'm absolutely overwhelmed with um, the, the turnout we have here tonight, and I welcome you all. Um, there's clearly a great interest in either conversation or TBI or both, and I'll be talking about both today. But I'm hoping that what I can share with you in the next 40 minutes or so are some key ideas about conversation, particularly, and they're ideas that I think we can all use, and Cathy said it's something that we should be able to use when we... I, not even when you leave here, but at the end t tonight, there are drinks and canapes, apparently. So um, you'll be able to practice some of these skills even before you walk out the door, So, which is great. Conversation, obviously, is something that underpins everything we do. And um, this is actually a cousin of mine's 50th birthday party. Um, and what did we do all night that night? We talked. We talked for hours and hours and hours and hours. And so that's how I reconnected with um, people I hadn't seen for 10 or 15 years. I caught up with my family. Um, we, we talked about history. Um, there's many, many functions to conversation. We use it to solve problems. We use it to share our feelings and our history. Um, in essence, it's also part of our identity. How you present yourself in conversation and how you interact is very intricately related to who you are and how you relate to your, your world and your friends and your colleagues. And it's also a, a way we plan for our future, um, is, is to talk about it. So it's very, very important. The problem um, for people with um, after a traumatic brain injury is that sometimes the ability to converse is affected in a negative way and people have difficulty in being able to converse. Um, so I just need to talk a little bit about what a traumatic brain injury is, what I mean by that. Um, so the sorts of people that I'm going to be talking about that I've worked with are people who've had a blow to the head of some sort. Um, where the head's been forced forward and backwards rapidly and usually there's a loss of consciousness in the people that I see. And there's brain damage happens because the brain's quite soft and it's inside a bony skull and it hits, if you're um, in a car accident for example and your head hits the windscreen or the um, steering wheel, you'll... Um, hit your head and your, your brain will go forward in your skull and then there's what's called a contracoup injury and the, the brain bounces back and that causes more damage. And it also twists on its axis. So we get what we call diffuse axonal damage. So um, it's a, it, it can be quite devastating and then there are secondary injuries afterwards including bruising and swelling and other um, electrophysiological changes that happen that cause even further damage, tertiary damage. We know that alcohol is associated with up to half cases of traumatic brain injury, but obviously not all. And the most common causes are car accidents, um, but also increasingly in older people, falls are a common cause. Um, assaults, we've all heard on the news about um, what's been happening in King's Cross and people getting hit. Um, every morning I would get up and open the paper and within the first couple of pages there'd be something about someone that had had a brain injury. Um, and also sporting accidents, so football accidents. And while a brain injury can happen to anybody, it most commonly happens to young men aged 15 to 35 years. Um, and it also uh, starts to peak again when somebody's um, approaching... 75 to 80, because we start to get those um, fall injuries. And it's incredibly expensive for our society, traumatic brain injury. Um, in 2008, in that year alone, the lifelong costs of TBI were estimated to be $8.6 billion in Australia. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a community problem, traumatic brain injury. This is just a, a diagram of um, two uh, brains. 
the one on the on your left is a, the brain of a 30-year-old man who has no damage. So what we have here is everything's intact. He's got these lovely long fibres and these are all the connections that happen in our brain. We have lots of connections between... We have billions of neurons or nerve cells in our brain and they connect up and you can see we've got connections from deep in the brain up to the cortex and then we also have lots of connections from the front and the back of the brain. What's happened here with this fellow, he's a, a man in his early 20s, he's had a severe brain injury with loss of consciousness and he's had some of those diffuse axonal shearing injuries and what we've done is um, lost some of these connections. Okay. So this is a, a, an imaging technique that's being increasingly used um, worldwide, um, including here in Australia, for us to see um, the connections in the brain and how they're, how they're damaged. And when those, dam those um, connections are damaged, there are many, many problems that can arise. Um, and these can include, obviously, medical problems, um, there are physical and sensory loss. Um, for example, when I talked about the person's brain, <coughs> excuse me, hitting the back of their head, um, that's where all our vision is. So frequently we see visual problems in people with brain injury because of that, that um, injury where it's, it's gone to the back of their head. Um, critically, they have difficulty with um, thinking and learning, uh, and that's because that all happens in our frontal lobes. Um, and also behaviour and personality change. And once again, those things are centred in our... They, they happen a lot in our frontal lobes. Um, what I want to talk about tonight, though, are the communication problems that we see with these people, and particularly their conversational skills problems. And also, um, they can have slurred speech, um, so that their motor speech control is um, affected and also word finding problems, just not being able to think what to say, not being fluent, not being able to connect together their ideas. Um, now, these problems obviously affect the person with brain injury, uh, but over the many years that I've worked in this field, I've also seen that it obviously has a devastating impact on families. And um, we see issues in terms of emotional distress um, caregiver burden and in a very large study in the United States we found that um, it was reported that one third of caregivers were at risk of depression and anxiety or other forms of psychological distress so um, it's incredibly stressful for the family unit um, when somebody has a severe TBI and one of the main um, reported problems that contributes to this distress um, in, within the family is this problem of communication and difficulty being able to communicate effectively. Now, this led me in my early work to look at how do families interact with, with their... Um, I was looking at men with brain injury, young men. So how do, how do they interact with their sons or with their um, husbands um, after they've had a brain injury? And um, I was particularly my first study looking at mothers um, along with other sorts of communication partners. And what I did was I studied a group of people that had a brain injury, young men, who also had a brother who didn't have a brain injury, who was close in age. And I compared how did the mothers talk to their two sons during a telephone call. And I found that there was a significant difference in what mothers did when they talked to their brain-injured sons compared to their normal sons. And it wasn't all good. Um, it was... Uh, some of it was... They, they were positive and they were obviously caring and loving and wanting to help their son... Um, in their recovery. But some of the things that I saw mothers do were going to actually hold back the person with brain injury and their ability to improve. So asking questions over and over again, even though they'd already been answered, or asking lots of testing questions that um, they already knew the answer to. Things like, so what did we do yesterday? Um, this is not something that we would normally ask in a conversation. Normally you'd ask, what did you do yesterday? Or what did somebody else do yesterday? But you wouldn't say, what did we do yesterday? Because you know that. So it's a bit like a teacher, talking like a teacher. Um, so from that early work, I realised that maybe if uh, I worked with families, I might be able to change some of these behaviours and help um, 
shine a spotlight, if you like, on, on what their interactions were like and how could we make them better. Um, what the negative effects of doing that is that it's limiting what the person with brain injury was able to communicate. They weren't being asked about their feelings. They weren't being asked about their opinions. They weren't being asked to give new information. And that's what we do in conversation. That's what makes it interesting, is that you have new, conversa new information um, given to you. So to test this theory out, I then embarked upon a, a clinical trial funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council with a number of my colleagues, and uh, they are both neuropsychologists and speech pathologists. Any work that we do in traumatic brain injury needs to be multidisciplinary because it's such a complex um, condition. So we had uh, 44 participants uh, in this study. They were allocated to one of three groups. So the first group, um, they received partner training and the person with brain injury was also involved in that training process. So they received the TBI Express Communication Partner Training Program together. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. There was another group of people who we just trained the person with brain injury on their own, which is pretty traditional. That was sort of like what we see in most hospitals and outpatients where you just focus your treatment on the person with brain injury. And then there was a third group who didn't get the treatment till much later, so they were my control group. They didn't get the treatment. The um, makeup of these participants were uh, more males than females, which is typical of what we see. Um, in, in the outcome of, of traumatic brain injury, average age of 36. So these are people in the prime of their life, basically. They're, they're at working age, they've um, got families. And um, average age of, um, uh, average education, sorry, of 12 years. The point I want to make about this group is they were very chronic. So the time post-injury on average was eight years after their accident. Um, some people would say that you can't get any change with somebody eight years after a brain injury, right? Generally, people say that that stops after two years and then what you've left with at two years is what you've got. Um, but I had people, you can see the range there was from um, one to 25 years. So I had people 25 years post-injury in this study. And average post-traumatic amnesia is an indication of how severe the injury is. Anything longer than seven days of post-traumatic amnesia, which is the period of time where you're confused, you're not making memories from day to day, um, you, can't, you, you, you can't remember anything about what you did yesterday, you might be disoriented. This is a good indicator. The length of that time is a good indicator of how severe the brain injury is. And... 83 days indicates we had a very extremely severe group. Something else to think about when we start looking at the results. So those 44 people brought along their partners um, who had a mean age of 50 years and 13 years of education. 80% of those partners were female because most of our, our participants were male and 80% knew the person with brain injury. Now, the vast majority of these people were uh, partners, so we had um, a lot of wives come to this training. We had uh, parents, but we also included siblings or friends um, in the study as well. And this is what we gave them, TBI Express, and it's a conversational skills training program. And what happened was groups of four to five people with brain injury would um, come together each week in a group, for two and a half hours and a one hour individual session. And uh, that would happen for 10 weeks. And we trained them to, we, we took lots of videos of them before they engaged in the treatment. And then they did lots of recordings of themselves using um, digital, digital voice recorders between sessions. So they did lots of practice, which is another important part of this treatment. And then we also assessed them six months after the treatment to see whether what we'd done with them was maintained, whether we, we actually had an effect with these people, because that's very important too. Now, there was a lot in this training because we did 10 weeks. And obviously in the time I have tonight, I can't talk about the whole program. But what I'm going to do is um, point out to you three of what we think are the potent ingredients to this treatment. These are three things that we really think helped and what we think worked when people got it. 
So the three things are collaboration, elaboration and question asking. So what do I mean by collaboration? Well, harking back to what happened in some of my earlier work, and I could see that um, people had uh, started to have unequal conversations. The communication partners had tended to take over the conversation a bit. They were the ones that directed all the questions. They began and finished conversations. And the people with brain injury were really getting less opportunity to talk. They just weren't getting as many chances in their, in their conversations. So what we did was we focused a light on that and we said, how can we make these conversations more equal again and more fun and enjoyable? And how can we um, help you to connect together again? And collaboration is composed of five things to think about when you're talking with some, somebody. It comes from the work of um, a fellow called Mark Ilvesaka in the United States who helped me write this program. And uh, these were the five things that, that help us collaborate. So being coming to an interaction where you've got the intent that we're going to do this together. Um, we're, we're, we're in this together. I'm going to help you. I want this to be an equal interaction. Um, cognitive support means the partner does things to help make the conversation easier. They provide scaffolding. They provide extra information for the person rather than testing them out. And I'm going to show you an example with some videos shortly about what I mean by these things. And emotional support. We, we noticed in some of the interactions that we saw of these people before they had the training, there wasn't a lot of love and joy in these conversations anymore. They really were just going through the motions. They really weren't that interested. They'd really, they'd lost energy and excitement and interest and they weren't asking real questions anymore. Um, and that was for a whole range of reasons and we weren't being judgmental about that but it was like, have a look at this video of your interaction and let me know what you think about it. You know, how, do, how much fun do you think your son's having that interaction. Um, so coming to it jointly with emotional support for each other, demonstrating interest in what the other person's saying, eye contact, energy in your voice, asking questions, and uh, this notion of collaborative turn-taking. So making sure that both people get a turn. If someone wants to ask a question, they can. If someone wants to give information, they can. So we were able to come up with checklists, if you like, of what were, what were collaborative behaviours and what were non-collaborative behaviours. And what we asked our participants to do was to start to think, well, what am I doing when I have a conversation with my son or my husband? Am I sharing information? Am I, information, am I confirming what they've just said? Am I showing enthusiasm and communicating respect? and asking my questions in a non-demanding, supportive way. Much better way to go about that than the things on the right, which is, you know, talking like a teacher and correcting them. We had one husband and wife team and she spent the entire time correcting him because his memory wasn't very good. And he'd say, oh, we went to, we went to the club last weekend. And she'd say, no, we didn't. And he'd say, okay, um, we went to the pub last weekend. No, we didn't. So guess what he did? He stopped talking. Um, he, wasn't, he was actually non-communicative when he first came into our group. So it was really focusing on where's the fun here, you know, and they were a, a loving, very dedicated couple to each other. So it was really getting her to stop herself from correcting him all the time and that had a huge impact on their interaction um, and getting her to help support him um, so, for example, if somebody with brain injury said, oh, I'd really like to have a barbecue at home, if you were a less collaborative partner, you'd say, no, we can't have a big barbecue in our unit, it's too small, we'll just have it at a community centre. So it's completely non-collaborative. A more collaborative partner would say, so they'd acknowledge, yes, it would be nice to have a barbecue at home, you're right, that, wouldn't that be great? But I was thinking, though, we've got lots of people coming. Our place is pretty small. And then just leave a pause, leave a little break. This was one of the key things that worked for people with brain injury, pause time, thinking time, 
because their thinking is slowed down. So they'd need, it might just be 10 seconds, but if they had that little bit of extra time, they could then come up with something and contribute to that conversation. So time is important for all of us. Quite often you'll ask a question and then you'll jump in with another question and just giving somebody time to process what's, what's happening was a powerful um, therapeutic tool. If they can't think of anything else, then it's a jointly produced thing. Well, why don't we think of better places that we could have it? So brainstorm that together. That's much more collaborative. Elaboration was slightly different. It was particularly useful for those people who had difficulty thinking of things to say. Sometimes after a brain injury, people just can't generate ideas anymore about what to talk about. So we, we talked to them about what are they interested in? What topics are they interested in? How can we find out more about that topic? Sometimes their homework was to go away and find out about more about motorbikes or snakes or whatever it was that they were interested in. I'm not kidding. And um, then, then that's what they'd talk about. And we taught them strategies of how to elaborate topics, how to organise the conversation um, so, that, so that more detail could be given. So we also had this checklist of elaborative behaviours too. Asking them about something that they're interested in was, you know, it sounds obvious, but quite often they were talking about topics that, that, that were of not of interest. Um, adding information, so getting the partner to add information to help the person get their ideas across and, and to connect their ideas together. Organising their information. So sometimes people really couldn't remember what they'd done last weekend. So rather than saying, what did we do last weekend? You'd say, oh, remember last weekend? Wasn't that great? We went to that restaurant. What was it called? The Deck. We went to that beautiful restaurant. And I went to that with my husband here a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, wasn't that great? So you're not testing them and you're indicating that you enjoyed it and you've, you've setting it up. If they can't remember, you remember that place, it was right under the Harbour Bridge. It was just, remember we were at Luna Park. Oh, and what did I have for my first course? So you're organising the night, you're giving us, you're setting the scene, so you're prompting them and you're helping them with their thinking. Nine times out of ten, the person with brain injury starts to remember stuff and starts to contribute stuff. So that can be a very powerful way to help develop the conversation. And then reviewing what's been said, you know, at the end, you know, oh, yeah, gee, that was a great night. I really enjoyed it. I hope we do that again soon. So just, you know, topping and tailing what you're, what you're talking about. The other thing that we talked about was question asking. It sounds very basic, but we saw lots of teacher-type teacher questions and we taught our, our um, people to be to ask open-ended questions, ask about opinions, ask about feelings, um, and ask real questions, not um, not questions that you already know the answer to to test someone's memory. So, did the treatment work? Well, the bottom line is yes, it did. And after the treatment, we did see significant effects for those people where the partner came to the training as well. We uh, had videos of people and we had blind raters, which meant that they didn't know who was involved in the study, they didn't know whether somebody had had the treatment or not, they didn't know which group they'd belonged to, so we had 360 videos all randomly allocated and some very diligent people watched them for us and rated them. And so it was a very good way of testing, was that interaction really better after the training? And what we noticed was the person with brain injury was uh, consistently found to have better interactional skills. So they were improving because they were given better communicative options by their partner. We also saw that partners improved in their ability to help the person communicate effectively and acknowledge their competence. That was what the scale was called, acknowledging competence, revealing competence, helping that person um, reveal what, what's actually in there, which often it, it gets masked by all these other problems that a, a person's having. And the conversations were generally rated as being more rewarding, more interesting um, and less effortful after the training. Did it get maintained over time? Well, happily, yes, it did. So at six months, the group who where we trained the communication partners as well as the person with brain injury 
had improved relative to the other group. And that actually got even less effortful. So in some cases we saw what I would consider normal conversations, normal, relaxed, happy conversations six months down the track. Why was that? Because they had six months to practice and habituate these new skills and it just became habit. They just got, they, their skills were better. They didn't, weren't thinking about it anymore. So they were much less effortful. So at the end of that um, process, what we did was, you know, because this worked, I wanted to make sure that the resources and the ideas that we came up with in this study would be available to the general public and to clinicians, and obviously to people with brain injury and their families, most importantly. So we developed this website, and if you Google TBI Express, it will come up. And all the videos, I'm going to show you a couple of quick videos. Um, to demonstrate what I mean by collaboration. They're all available. You can just click on it and it'll go and I'll actually show you that because that's what I'm going to do. There's also some other resources there as well. So if we look at the collaboration videos, we've got a what not to do and then um, the, the mum has a little reflection video and then there's a one about what to do. And uh, I've heard reports that this can be quite helpful to use in treatment with people so that you can play these videos. I've got all the scripts online, so all the scripts to the videos are there with, and note, they've got notes next to them about what are the collaborative behaviours we're trying to demonstrate and what are the non-collaborative ones. Um, so at this point, I think I want to show you the videos. And this is a video between a mother and son. And I'm only going to show a short snippet of it, but it's really, a, there's some of the behaviours that she does, that these, were, these videos were made based on real transcripts that we had. So we, we collapsed some of the conversations that we had, so they're, they're what people said and how they interacted with each other. What briefly we saw there was that at the beginning she gave him lots of options. Do you want something to eat? Do you want something to drink? It was sort of very quick. She was really asking him to rely on his memory. She wasn't giving him many cues, testing his memory. She corrected him in a punishing way. And we, we saw some mothers do this. You know, it's like, no, that's not right. You, that's, not, that, that's not what happened. Um, and really talking to him like a teacher, correcting him, and she was running that conversation. Okay, now we're doing this. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do then? So he wasn't really initiating any um, conversation in that. Um, this is just an example of that. It's an observation sheet that you can download off, off the website that I showed you that has the full script of that video. So I don't expect you to be able to read it on this, but um, it's, you know, did you want anything else to eat or drink? That's where um, she's interrupting him, disrupting thought processes, etc. So it's a way of, of prompting. So what we tried to do is demonstrate how to turn that interaction around and be more collaborative and and more enjoyable for, for both um, our person with brain injury and the mother as well. And so what was happening there was she was asking him questions that included some information that helped him remember. She was being much more conversational. She was being nice. You know, she was being... Um, just connecting things conversationally. She was contributing opinions. She was asking him for his opinion. So um, there's, there's, um, it, it's a different way of thinking. It's quite subtle. It took people a little while, uh, for some people it took a little while to learn these skills. But once they'd learnt them and start practising them over this 10-week period, it just changed everything for them. It changed the way they were interacting. It changed um, many parts of their life. There are also videos online that you can look at that demonstrate elaborative versus non-elaborative, um, which I don't have time to show you. And we also have a number of uh, resources. So if you go to the resources um, here, the resources drop down, you'll, you'll get, um, you can download all these things that I've been talking about. So in summary, training partners was more efficacious. And it led, um, it led to improved engagement in social activities. We noticed that mothers were letting their sons be more independent. They were starting to let them go out more. It, it wasn't just about communication. It was about their relationship and about 
the big world out there and how is this person going to start returning to everyday activities. Um, in some cases it was the first, there was, this was when the first link hap happened that there was a reconnection with social networks. So we'd recommend that this is an important complementary treatment for people with brain injury. So in terms of thinking about where to from here, well, we're wanting to do this treatment on Skype because we're wanting to see if can we assess people on Skype, can we treat people on Skype so that people um, in outer urban, I mean, there's people who live in Sydney who can't get to a clinic room. So can we treat these people when they're at home, or obviously it's going to be applicable to people in rural and even remote regions. So I have a PhD student at the moment, Rachel Redake, who's embarking on a, an assessment study. She's collected 14 participants and she's comparing, is there any difference between us doing a face-to-face -face assessment versus doing a Skype telehealth assessment? And at this stage, it looks like they're equivalent. So that's a good sign for us to move forward and in, embark on a treatment study. Um, the other uh, area that I want to start to work on is getting, this is, I'm sorry, this is a bit fuzzy. It wasn't fuzzy at home. But um, this is a screenshot of Miss Pat. And Miss Pat is an avatar. And she talks. You can program her to talk. And so you can do conversation practice with Miss Pat. And so we can program her to speak with an Australian voice. And we can program her to have the conversation that you want to have. So for, for many of the young men who I've worked with in the past, what's the conversation they want to have? They want to be able to pick up a girl in a bar. So Miss Pat's the girl. And um, they, they can practice... Um, their lines, if you like, their conversation icebreakers on Miss Pat. So this is a sort of a fairly new treatment. I've been working with the team at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Uh, it's very exciting. They've, they've had millions put into this um, through National Institutes of Health grants. And we're, it's, but they've only been doing it with people with stroke. So we want to do it with people with traumatic brain injury here in Australia. We just need to get the money. Uh, but we, we will get the money and we're collecting some pilot data at the moment. I've got a postdoctoral fellow doing that. So that's very exciting as well. So just to conclude uh, and some take-home messages for you is that recovery can happen after two years after injury. I think I've demonstrated that fairly clearly tonight uh, with family involvement. And that's because of the very exciting news that the brain does have this property called plasticity. And that is, we, when I did my training years ago, we were told you, the number of brain cells you've got is what you've got. You know, don't drink too much or you'll lose your brain cells um, because you're not getting any more. And we now know that's not true. There's many experiments, and my husband's laughing at me here, there are many experiments that have shown neuron growth with practice. The key is we need to be doing tasks that are very meaningful to the person. They need to be specific. There needs to be a lot of repetition and it needs to be intensive. When all those things happen, brain, brain rewiring happens. Um, the other key things I think were part of this process were positive motivation, lots of positive reinforcement, positive practice and realistic goal setting. Uh, so uh, being aware of your short and medium term goals and not thinking I'm going to do this and I'm going to go back to work. Um, it's really focusing on what's realistic for the next little while and, and developing your goals appropriately. But because successful conversation is really essential to all aspects of daily life, it's just so important that we get it right and that we help these people start to converse um, happily again with their friends, with their family, um, with their work colleagues, with their study colleagues. And, you know, this is my idea of conversation, <laughs> um, is having a social, happy time where you're sharing, you're giving opinions. This is what I want people, all people with brain injury, regardless of their communication problem, to have the opportunity to do. And I think the TBI Express program is, is a really nice way to help facilitate that. So with that, I think I'll stop um, and thank you very much for your attention.
it's a little bit unfortunate standing up here directly after that, because now you know exactly how to critique my conversation, <laughs> and I haven't had a chance to practice yet. But um, um, please, this is your time to have a conversation with Leanne, or ask questions, or debate. While you're thinking about it, and the microphones are coming around, if we just think how critical it is, like if any of you have been, like I learned some languages. I um, was married to a person who spoke another language when I went to his country. I only spoke a bit. And you're sitting there understanding but not quite in the conversation and it feels like you've got no personality. And so I'm kind of a little bit, oh, you wouldn't have picked it, but a little bit wild <laughs> and a little bit, you know, I think I'm a little, got a bit of humour. But I had none of that when I'm sitting in a group that I can't actually converse with properly and I realise the challenge and that's just a minor part of what's happening with people with traumatic brain injury. Thanks, Leanne. That was a really interesting presentation. And, and brain plasticity is very interesting as well. So mm -hmm. do you know, following your treatment, whether you're actually just regenerating the connections that you have lost from that injury or whether the brain is remodelling and so you're making different types of connections? Have you sort of scanned these patients? After? No, we didn't scan the patients. Um, and I don't know the answer to that question. But I suspect both things were happening. And I think uh, the, some of the research that, that I was looking at just recently, actually with rats, but you, you, can, you can see uh, after training that both those processes happen. Um, we didn't do scanning. I'd probably like to do that at some point in the future. Thank you. That was a really wonderful talk. Um, I work as a neuropsychologist and I guess my question was um, sort of relating to the neuroplasticity and I think that it's, um, I mean, it's probably not essential because you're actually training the partners to work more effectively and I could actually see that that could apply to people with um, more degenerative conditions as well. Mm. Um, it's really sort of enabling better communication but teaching the partner whose brain function is intact mm. to actually work in a different way to actually enable the person to communicate. That's exactly right, and I think that's. I think we would teach. I should say that the group that we just trained the person with brain injury on their own, a didn't do any of their homework. So um, you know, there were, there wasn't the repetition and the intensity of practice, um, and some of them, when we brought them back at six months, they couldn't remember having ever done the training. So, um, you know, it's unlikely they're going to remember what they did in the training if they can't remember that they did it. Having said that, there were people in our... Uh, there were people with brain injury in our group whose communication did improve on a number of measures. Um, we, we took a number of primary and outcome... secondary outcome measures, and they, they changed. So something happened in their brains um, to, to make that happen. I don't think we know enough about it. But the, the point of having the communication partner was that, yes, they've got a, an intact cogn cog cognition process. They're remembering what we did. They practice, practice, practice. You know, they really wanted to make this work. And they continued that practice beyond the, the scope of the training. And they also trained other partners. So we, we had this train-the-trainer thing happening where um, I started the, the, started the training and a carer turned up with a person with brain injury and the carer went home and told the mother this is what they're going to do and the next week the mother turns up and said he's not getting the training I'm getting the training because this this her son had a number of carers and she said I want to train all the carers and we gave them all the manual I mean I've got a copy of the manual here if you want to have a look at we gave them this 400 page manual at the end they could go and train um, all the other carers so uh, it was, that was, the, I think that was the essence of why we got the change and why we got the long-term change was, was the, 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 the intact partner, if you, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Hello. I um, appreciate that you've done a lot of studies around um, verbal communication. Have mm. you looked into written communication at all? No, I haven't. And written communication generally across the speech pathology field is very under-researched. So um, what, what did you have in mind? 
Just in terms with regards to the question that was asked previously around um, are people remembering how to do things or learning again from scratch? Mm -hmm. So um, my father has an acquired brain injury yes. and I found that his recovery, recovery has been great verbally mm -hmm. but also in terms of writing and I feel that that's down to memory rather than being retaught. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only work we've done in terms of writing, if you like, is we, we did look at um, chat room discourse of people with brain injury um, and, um, you know, how well did they deal with that sort of environment in putting them in a situation where they were with strangers in a... It was a controlled chat room with a moderator, but how well did they go with that? And uh, they had a lot of problems. They had problems with, um, you know, coming up with topics, staying on topic, um, generating new ideas. So, uh, so yeah, we've, we've done work with written, like, typed communication, but not, yeah, not what you're talking about. Um, I work as a speech pathologist in an acute setting, and part of the frustration with working with somebody with a TBI is sometimes they're still in PTA or yes. they can't access rehab. Yes. Um, Would you mind standing up? I just can't quite sure. see you. It's a bit That's disorienting right. talk, talking to... Somebody um, else's head. That's all right. Would you be advocating for sort of your whole language psychosocial approach early on rather than, say, an impairment-based model that, you know, mm. traditionally we do in an acute setting? Not while someone's in PTA, I wouldn't. Um, I'd wait till they're out of PTA before I tried any of this. But we have had... Um, I've had some reports from people saying they have tried some of these um, ideas with families in the acute or subacute phase, and it has it has been useful. Uh, part of what I, I would like to see in the future, one of the studies I'd like to do, is thinking about it as a preventative measure, because at some point, and I, I don't know when it is, and I will find out the question, the answer to this question, because I'm doing a, a longitudinal communication recovery study at the moment. So we've we've collected data on 58 people who had a brain injury and we're measuring them at three months or as soon after they come out of PTA as possible, then six months, nine months, 12 months, and then two years after the injury. And we're recording them having conversations with their families at all those times. And what one thing I'm really interested in is at what point do families switch and start talking to their, to their relative in a different way? And... I don't know the answer to that question yet. That's we're still we're, we're still collecting the data, but it quite possibly is pretty early on, and uh, and I think that's because the person comes in, they may have lost all their speech to start with, or they may be very confused and disorientated, and um, and so the the if it, if it's a parent particularly, they're just wanting to sh you know it's it's their baby, it's their child. And so they revert to how they would have interacted with that person when they were much younger and protective. And in fact, I had a mother once who said to me, she she didn't want any of us to see her son unless she was there or unless she'd said we were coming. And she said to me afterwards, after she'd kind of got through this phase, she said, I'm the mother elephant and he's my baby and no one's going to get to him at all, you know, I'm the mother and you can't, you're not going to get in between that, you're not getting in between me and my baby elephant. So uh, something happens very early on and I think communication changes as a result of that and that's okay for that time but if that continues on, you know, and you've got a 35-year-old son um, who's, who's an adult, um, it's a problem. So I think we might be able to do some education with family and we're, we're also interested in friends' experiences after a brain injury because, you know, if you think it was your friend that's gone through this and they, they seem different and their behaviour's different, they might be inappropriate, they might talk too much, um, they might swear a bit more than they used to um, and you think, who is this person? I don't know what's happened to him, I don't know how to talk to him. Um, that can be very confronting. And so I think certainly in the early stages of rehabilitation, we could be doing a lot of work um, with friends to, to keep them hanging around because we also know that most people lose their friends by six months post-injury and that they're very hard to make new ones. 
So we want to try and hang on to the ones they've got as much as we can. Yeah. Uh, Leanne, I work in paediatric brain injury. And um, one of the challenges that we have, obviously, is that young people go through this horrible phase of adolescence and with a brain injury that's doubly Magnified, hard. yeah. I'm just wondering about the applications of this program with that adolescent population and whether you feel like it's something that we could utilise in schools, perhaps, or...? Yeah. Yeah, I think you could. The, the, the principles underlying this actually came from... I mentioned Mark Ilvesaka before. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he was a professor of speech pathology in the United States. And when I first talked to him about these ideas, he was doing it with parents of preschool children. So he, he was a paediatric um, guy and he didn't work with the kids at all. He only worked with the parents and he would get the parents thinking about how were they talking to their very young children. Uh, and these were kids who were going to school and coming home and, you know, mum would say, so what did you do today at school? And they'd say, oh, I don't know. And they'd go, come on, you must remember. And go, oh, I don't know. And he had these wonderful videos of these kids who just gave nothing, like there was just nothing there. And very angry, frustrated mothers and... So he would sit down with these people and he'd say, look, and with the teachers as well, and he'd say, this child cannot remember what they did today. So you can ask them 20 times, what did they do today? They're not going to remember. So why don't you jointly construct a narrative with them about what they did today and help... And this is the collaborative nature of conversation. So... Rather, if mum finds out from the teacher that they did some maths, they did sport, you know, whatever they did, and she says, hey, I was talking to, um, to Miss Thomas today and she was telling me that you, you did some sport today. What, what was that about? So you're prompting the child, you're giving them a bit of cue, and then the kid went, yeah, we did this, we ran around the playground, we did all this stuff. And so he has, he's got these before and after videos of these kids and they're like different children. And it's just because they were given some scaffolding and some support to think and remember about what they'd done. So it was their brain injury and their cognitive problems that were the main issue. They just, but they did need that support. And then the more they, the kids did that, the more they got their confidence up. So he had this lovely video of this little child who you would swear was non-communicative and could not speak to start with. And at the, at the last video, he's there in the classroom putting his hand up every time the teacher's asking a question and, you know, you can't keep him down. So he'd suddenly got this great success. So I definitely think you can use it with children because that's actually where it came from. Hmm. Um, Leanne, I've used um, TBI Express with a few people. Oh, and good um, for you. Yeah, and with carers, and I want to say that that has worked really well with carers as well. And I guess I've had a re some really switched-on carers, which is been helps. obviously helps mm, yes yeah. what I wanted to ask you though is mm. um, clients that have got lacking in insight because you're not directly mm. working with the client you're mm -hmm. working with the care and I was wondering just your experience with people that have lacked that insight whether you've just forged ahead and done it anyway and just what the outcomes have been we did um, we had some people who didn't have much insight into their problems um, so there was one young man in particular who was 18 months post injury who I can think of who um, who actually that, that video was based upon him. Um, and he really couldn't see that he had a lot of problems. And uh, he, wanted, he knew that he wanted to talk a bit better. He, 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 wanted, he wanted the conversation to be more... He said, I, I want to be cool, calm and collected when I talk and I want to have a 50-50 conversation with my mother. I don't want her asking me a whole bunch of questions all the time and I don't want her cutting me off. So she, he knew what he wanted her to do <laughs> and he didn't really see that he had a lot of issues. And uh, I spoke to him not long ago and he... It's, it's, it's that classic thing, you know, people often have to get to at least two years before insight starts to happen and then something seems to often happen at two years and he's now past that time and he can now talk about it and say, well, I really couldn't see why we needed to do a lot of it but I didn't mind doing it. Um, and he did really improve on all our measures. So I think you, you can do it and at least the, the mother changed what she was doing and she was giving him a lot more communicative opportunity. So... 
that in itself helped him improve, if that makes sense, without him even knowing it. Yeah. Good. I'm glad I gave the right answer. <laughs> Are there any other questions? Um, oh, man here. Yeah. Sorry. This guy has. <laughs> I have. I'm sorry. Um, I'm probably in a minority in the audience tonight because I'm not a health professional, but okay. I do have brain damage. Yes. And I got it not from an injury, but from a stroke right. two and a half years ago. And there's two things I'd like to say, and that is, firstly, I couldn't agree more with you with, and with the principles of your training around conversation because I, I really was, and my partner's here, she'll confirm it, uh, I really was near to death. But mm. I've come back mm. a fair way, mm. and the big steps that I've made forward have been as a result of conversing with the people around me, my family and my, my previous friends. And th they haven't always agreed with everything I've said. They haven't been as sort of syrupy as mm -hmm. maybe no. you're suggesting. No, but that in might fact, be okay too. they've mostly disagreed with me. <laughs> but, 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 but being involved in conversation, there's no question. It's, it's pushing the brain, it's connecting, mm. it's reconnecting and, you know, mm. coming good. So what you're doing is wonderful and I'll have a look at uh, your website and, uh, Please and do. Uh, maybe download some of the videos to suggest to my friends how they can be even better. <laughs> Because they're not, they're, not, they're not good enough. <coughs> but the other thing I was going to say was yes. that the training, um, I, I was struck by some of the principles that you were uh, talking about, mm. in that the training is very similar to sales training and trainer training, both of which I've been involved in in my life. Okay, that's interesting. In sales training, you really want to encourage the person to come your way and you mm. don't want to say to the person, you really need this red thing. You sort of say, do you really, what, you, which, which of these things do you, do you like? Uh, this, this one looks terrific. This is red, you know? <laughs> and they come, they come your way. Yes. And the other thing mm. about trainer training is that you, as a trainer, you, you have to be putting yourself in the position of the trainee. Yes. Of the yes. learner. Mm -hmm. All the time. It's not what you're saying that's important, it's what they're hearing. And so very similar principles that mm. Uh, mm. are involved here. So all power to you. I hope Thank you get you. lots and lots of money for more and more research. I hope I get lots and lots of money too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi. I'm not sure Hello. how we're going for time. You've been very generous with your Q&A. Um, but I was interested in um, the spreading of the training that was talked about earlier in terms of, you know, the police and other organisations in the community mm -hmm. um, because it's, you know, it's wonderful to be starting in the core social network and starting with family and then expanding to friends but then you also mentioned the p potential of going back to work and things like that. Mm. Obviously that requires a lot of, you know, support um, um, on, a on a various levels but in terms yes. of um, training various... Um, groups in the community, have you looked at others aside from um, police and other sorts of um, uh, services? What we've done is, I, I did work with the police down at the Goulburn Academy um, in, in terms of teaching them how to interact with people with brain injury uh, and that was successful. They were able to learn new ways to, to be more appropriate and we also did a a broader disability awareness training program for the Attorney General's Department. So that was really more about uh, training, well, all law and justice personnel who work. So there are 10,000 staff in Attorney General's. So that was solicitors, judges, sheriffs, chamber magistrate, you know. And th that was really about how to communicate with somebody who can't speak um, and, and being aware of strategies to interact with people. and. Putting, putting yourself in their shoes in a way and what, what would it be like to well, well into a courthouse and be wanting to try and, you know, make a complaint um, or whatever. So we've done that and uh, I did them first because they seemed easier to me than the families and uh, uh, I'm, I'm keen to continue working with families. The other group that I want to work with longer term is actually healthcare professionals <coughs> and nurses uh, and just looking at how they're interacting with people with brain injury um, and stroke as well, actually. 
Uh, and we're doing a, a little uh, training study at the moment where we're trialling it out with allied health professionals in terms of uh, actually not speech pathologists but other allied health in how, how are they interacting with people with severe communication disability because uh, particularly in, in the healthcare context because we know these people in hospital have enormous trouble um, communicating their needs and being heard and getting opportunities to communicate. So there's the sky's the limit, really. I mean, I could I could be educating everybody. I stand in St George Bank and I think, oh my God, I've got to do something to train these people, <laughs> or Telstra, or you know, wherever to name I go, a few names. <laughs> <laughs> wherever I go, and then I'll go up and say, have you had any disability awareness training in terms of how to interact with someone with a disability? And they go, no, we haven't had any of that. So I think there's plenty of work to do. I think there, we could be doing lots of great things in the future. Great, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. I'm very glad about the conversation tonight. My husband is not uh, brain damaged. He got um, brain tumor. Mm -hmm. And according to his oncologist, the 75% of his tumor was removed, and the 25% was still there. Mm -hmm. And He's undergoing a, a radiotherapy, uh, and mm -hmm. um, um, he, his um, um, mind is like uh, sometimes deteriorating, sometimes he is well, but um, I just want to know if the radiotherapist Radio, radiation therapy will be able to help him to restore his memory because well, some of the symptoms question. uh what you mentioned about brain uh, damage he got some other symptoms mm -hmm. so i just want to know if there is a possibility that he can recover from his memory um, I don't specialise in brain tumours as such, and, and but what I do know about them is that it's highly variable what can happen, and it, it's hard to know. Um, it, it's almost easier after a traumatic brain injury to start to see patterns of recovery and know how people are going. It's much more variable, and you know, as you say, um, he's having radiotherapy, and it's difficult to know what the impact is. But um, I was at a conference just uh, last weekend, as Cathy said, and there were some, there were quite a few papers on working with people with brain tumour. And uh, I think there is more therapy happening um, with, with these people. There were some very nice studies where, you know, people were showing recovery. Um, and so, hard to know. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to comment on your, on your case particularly, but... Uh, it, it, it's, it, it, yeah, it's very variable. We don't know. And it's really just a matter of monitoring and hoping. And uh, I think that was a, a theme that came out of a lot of my work was that people... And I was talking to Nick Rushworth, who's the head of Brain Injury Australia, um, at length last weekend, and he was saying that what happens to people after brain injury and after tumour and all these acquired brain problems is that that uh, they can get messages from people that there is no hope. And he said, there's always hope. You can't take away someone's hope. And I think in the work that I was doing with these extremely chronic people, I mean, working with someone 25 years after their brain injuries being, you know optimistic in the extreme but we we got changes with these people so you can't take away hope you always have to hang on to hope and um and just do, do your best thank you very much okay so i would first like to thank you and thank you for sharing your stories. They're very personal, very meaningful, and they actually help us as academics and researchers to make sure that we're doing real work that, that matters. But also to thank Leanne for, for a truly fantastic, amazing talk about all her research. So thank you, Leanne. <laughs> the 
there's a couple of things that just stick out to me out of that, and one is that from the stats, if I've got it right, 300 of our young men mostly, out of every 100,000 at age around 20, have an acquired brain injury. If I work that out, I think that's about 75,000 of our young men in our society every year are acquiring a brain injury, 75,000. So this is totally relevant to them, and I'm thinking that's much more than go to war or anything like that. It, it's so many of our young men, this is really important. And the other thing is that actually what Leanne is talking about is talking nicely to each other. We could all benefit from that. <laughs> when I think of some of the conversations that we have at work, and maybe Leanne can come and work with us, <laughs> just with us and normal. <laughs> so thank you, there's always stuff to learn that's fantastic. <laughs> so thank you again, Leanne, and then I'll tell you about next one. <laughs>